This is the Master Brewers Podcast, brought to you by the Master Brewers Association of the Americas, a volunteer organization dedicated to continually improving the products and processes of our membership since 1887. Master Brewers brings you interviews with the industry's best and brightest in brewing science, technology, and operations. This Master Brewers podcast is proudly sponsored by Hopsteiner, a global leader in the hop industry focused on quality, sustainability, and innovation in new hop varieties and hop products. Contact our brewery sales team to provide you with the hop-related tools you need to craft your next great beer. For more information, visit hopsteiner.com. Additional support provided by... Every beer has a story, and that's why, for over 95 years, Gusmer Enterprises has offered a full line of solutions, including equipment, analytical instrumentation, and processing aids, all brought to you from leading suppliers and backed by strong technical support. For the solution to your story, go to gusmerbeer.com. And thanks also to Brew Ninja, a brewery software solution that streamlines your day-to-day operations, including inventory, accounting, sales, and compliance, so that you can focus on making great beer. Listeners of this podcast will receive a unique offer by going to GetBrewNinja.com and using the code BrewNinja21. This is not an unnatural process. This is very natural. Um, and so it, don't be scared. Um, these, these, are, these are great tools. This week on the show, my friend and former colleague Mark Sammartino joins us to talk about process control through enzyme understanding, natural and commercial. This episode originally aired in October of 2017. We'll be back next week with a brand new episode that you won't want to miss. You begin your presentation by highlighting the relationship between the brewer and maltster, and you said alone a brewer can be on thin ice. What did you mean by that? Well, as the number of breweries have kicked up over the last few years, and we're looking at 5,500 now, uh, with probably another 1,500 to nearly 2,000 on the drawing table, you're you're facing down a prospect of where to get raw materials, how to get consistent raw materials. The word consistent is you need to underline that three or four times in some respects, as well as pressure from corn, ethanol, um, wheat, et cetera. So as the population of the world grows, uh, the the bumper crops uh, or the cash crops, if you want to call that, for the for the farmers are, are not necessarily barley. Uh, barley is a difficult product to grow and to maintain, so its availability has dropped off over time. The number of farmers that actually are willing to grow and face the consequences of not having a good brewing quality uh, material and having it rejected has, has dropped off. So if you look at the number or, or amount of grain that's available in the world today, at one time brewers took 20% of the crop. Today they're taking 60% of the barley crop. And and with that, if you have any aberration in that process, like you've got a, a pre-sprout condition that hits most of uh, Western U.S. and part of Canada, uh, you, your availability of material drops off radically. And then the maltster is faced with this with this condition where he's got to try to make good malting quality um, malt out of 
product barley that's not necessarily of that quality. So if the if the if the malster and the brewer don't have a close relationship, what the brewer gets is not necessarily what the brewer is going to need uh, in order to make the types of products that they want to make. And it can make their life rather difficult. I forget who said it, but the phrase, all enzymes are proteins, but not all proteins are enzymes, has always stuck with me over the years. Hopefully every brewer listening to this podcast already knows what enzymes are, but maybe you'd like to hit a few generalities that are relevant to the topic. Well, all brewers probably know about beta amylase, alpha amylase uh, as being the key enzymes associated with the breakdown of, of starches, et cetera. But there's proteases and there's um, beta gluconases and peptidases and lipases, et cetera. There's a whole myriad of enzymes that are functioning within the mash in your process. And uh, enzymes are inherent to almost every living process. They exist within your body. They exist within every plant, uh, within, within every organism. They are the focus of how chemical reactions take place. They'll exceed, accelerate chemical reactions millionfold in many cases. And all they are is proteins, proteins made from DNA sequence transcribed um, into uh, um, transfer RNA into a protein sequence that actually has a function. It's not a living thing. It's just a protein that's there floating in solution. And as the molecules come past it, it has a very specific site. But that site is actually, you can call it an excited site if you want to call it that. It has the ability to attract the molecules that it's interested in, in the range and in the configuration that it needs in order to to cause that reaction to take place. When you think about a reaction that can actually occur normally in um, in an environment, it may take minutes for it to occur, but it occurs. You throw in an enzyme, an enzyme can turn over that sequence a million times a minute. Uh, and all it's doing is just attracting the molecule into its active site, executing an exchange of, of water, uh, actually inserts water into the specific um, bond and, and breaks that bond and releases the two products out into the into the environment. They're, as I said, they're natural. They're uh, amino acid sequence, uh, and they're very important to um, to the life cycle of every organism. Um, I, I assume that's enough as far as, I mean, we can get into enzymes. I'm, I was writing a book at one time, and I still may finish that. <laughs> but enzymes are are probably the single most important part of any living organism. You've done a lot of work over the years improving brewing processes with commercial enzymes. What are some of the ways commercial enzymes are used in brewing? Wow. The, the first, first basic use of enzymes in brewing, I think, came with the use of glucoamylases and, and the uh, low-calorie beers. Um, but uh, at the same time, if you're making a low-calorie beer, you're in effect making a high-calorie product and then diluting it down. So you've got a, an opportunity there to make products that may be in the range of 8, 10, 12, 14% alcohol without using excessive huge amounts of grain. Um, but when you look at other processes like the use of corn or rice that require cooking 
uh, alpha amylases can be added in order to offset the energy input, so help with sustainability, etc. Or the use of beta-glucanases and xylanases in when malt is not properly modified. Uh, or taking the bumps out of the road when you get a bag of malt that comes from this particular malster and a bag of malt that comes from that particular malster or within two or three months of each other uh, they're not consistent by adding the beta glucanases you can take the little bumps out of the road in that regard or in the case of pre-sprout where you've got a significant number of um, kernels within your batch that haven't actually been modified properly or or actually haven't been digested at all in, in the malting process and so you can add supplemental enzymes in order to offset that um need so uh in general use there they they can have you know quite a range um i look at enzymes today as a tool not necessarily as a lifestyle if you want to look at that uh the natural occurring enzymes in your process they are what they are and they are what that monster gives you and most of the monsters i know are very good at what they do but as the as i said the raw material availability drops off their flexibility drops off as well and what they can achieve. And to me, when, I'm, when, I, when I talk about making beer and making beer myself, uh, we look at, uh, I look at the consistency. So did I make it the same each and every time? And, and in order to make it the same each and every time, all of the, the variation in that process needs to be as tight as possible. So I lean directly upon my malster uh, in order for for getting me the right raw materials. If I can't get exactly what I want within that range, then I've got to do something about that in order to make that more consistent. So with the use of enzymes, you can make higher alcohols. You can take uh, less quality malt and and use it. You can uh, use adjuncts or other products that bring you into a whole different array of of fermentability and ester profile and flavors, etc. In the same time, you can even use products like unmalted barley, unmalted wheat, you know, or sorghum, etc. And be a lot more creative with the types of grains that you're using because the, the enzymes will open those up for you as well. Let's, let's dig into attenuation control. There's four different classes of enzymes that can be used for attenuation control. Tell us about those. When you look at uh, the actual um, alcohol levels that you're trying to achieve, you know the first one that comes to mind are the are the glucoamylases. Uh, glucoamylases uh, within malting and brewing, they're typically not. Uh, something that are very active in a malting process and and in malt there are active glucoamylases but they're very very small amounts of them and they don't survive the killing process so if you're a brewer and you want to make a a beer that's got a little bit of a higher um, rdf or a degree of fermentation or higher alcohol you need a, a kick so if you're using regular u.s malt you can probably achieve an rdf running around 75 77 if you really 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 push the envelope without any help but if you want to get something into an 87, 86% range, or even 82% uh, range, um, you're going to need some assistance. Glucoamylases will break down the starch sequence into glucose, um, starting from the non-reducing end, working its way up the amylose and the amylopectin chains uh, until they reach branch points in the amylopectin. Um, the second classification of enzymes that might come into play here would be uh, polyolinases. Polyolinases. Um, 
break the 1-6 bonds in the branch points of amylopectin. So that releases those uh, little pieces that are non-fermentable. So as the as the beta amylase and the, uh, works its way up the chain, uh, releasing maltose, or the glucoamylase works its way up the chain, releasing glucose, they reach the branch point. They can't proceed past that branch point. In order for them to, to make the rest of the molecule fermentable, um, you need to break that branch point. That's where the polyolinases come in. Um, the uses of of available maltose producing products to give you a little bump in fermentability uh fungal alpha amylase is one of those products they're, it, m- most of those are pretty temperature label um they're not really good products uh in my opinion they can give you a bump but they're difficult to work with and you can also get beta amylase extracts of malt but those tend to be very expensive um so i tend to look more towards um the use of glucoamylases in a control in a control manner or the use of polyolinases in in a control manner and i say that carefully because there is another process in there that if you get too much glucose but not enough glucose you can actually suppress your fermentations so if you're ever going to use glucoamylases make sure you understand the process and understand what you're trying to achieve and make sure that you understand glucose repression. And if you don't, uh, look it up. And if you can't find it, give me a call, uh, and we'll have a chat about it. Um, the last classification would deal with uh, would be amylases, and that's really just a matter of releasing more sugar for the natural enzymes to create some form of uh, fermentability. Keep in mind that alpha amylase um, is doesn't release a lot of fermentable sugar. It will on occasion release a DP1 or DP2, uh, making it fermentable. But most of the time, it's it's doing the random breaking up of of um, amylose and amylopectin chains and releasing dextrins um, that the uh, beta amylase can work on. So depending upon your temperature control capabilities, your ability to uh, get the right temperature profile for a functional and highly functional beta amylase will play into what kind of alcohol you can actually achieve. Coming up, how to use enzymes to prevent diacetyl formation, and more. I'm John Bryce, and you're listening to the Master Brewers Podcast from the Master Brewers Association of the Americas. There's really only one thing that keeps this podcast going, and that's when listeners like you take the time to thank our sponsors. The next time you talk to a rep from one of these companies, be sure to thank them for their generous support. Get to know Proximity Malt. We malt superior, European-style, low-protein varieties grown close to home in Delaware and Colorado. Domestically grown, precisely malted to style. With our team of seasoned experts and two brand new malt houses, Try what's really new in malt. Check us out at www.proximitymalt.com. Brew Monitor from Precision Fermentation works with your existing fermentation tanks to track dissolved oxygen, pH, gravity, pressure, temperature, and conductivity in real time from any smartphone, tablet, or PC. Get started for 30 days risk-free. Visit precisionfermentation.com slash MBAA. 
This episode is also sponsored by More Beer. Visit morebeerpro.com to browse ingredients, equipment, and more. Even the best yeast deserves a helping hand with seltzer fermentation, which is why Pathfinder N-Pure Seltzer Nutrient ensures reliable and complete fermentation of a seltzer base while providing a clean, neutral fermentation profile. Not to mention it provides all the essential nutrients required by yeast for production of hard seltzer bases fermented from those sweet refined sugars. Give your seltzer yeast a boost by visiting bsgcraftbrewing.com and searching for Pathfinder N-Pure Seltzer Nutrient or call BSG at 1-800-374-2739. There's one more sponsor I should mention and that's Fermentis, the global supplier of active dry yeast. You can listen to Kevin and Marcelo talk about the shelf life and performance of active dry yeast on episode 93. And here's what's coming up on the Master Brewers calendar. July 20th, join John Harris, Kevin Davey, and Andy Morrison for a webinar called Cold IPA Defined, a deep dive with the creators. And the Master Brewers Brewery Maintenance Systems course starts August 15th. I'm so glad to see the great District Northwest meeting once again at Hood River, October 15th and 16th. There's one big meeting that's on my calendar. I hope it's on yours. The 2021 Master Brewers Conference will be October 28th through the 30th in Cleveland. And don't forget the world-famous Master Brewers Brewing and Malting Science course begins October 31st. Check out the full calendar of events at mbaa.com for more details or to find a district meeting near you. Master Brewers offers a wide range of resources for breweries of all sizes and stages. Stay current on the latest scientific advancements, technical information, and industry trends by joining Master Brewers. Join today and use offer code BEER2021 to save 20% on dues now through December 31st, 2021. Master Brewers, united we brew. back to the show. How can beta-glucanase and xylanases make life easier in regards to laudering and beer filtration? Well, if we look at today's trends with the craft brewers and the brewing industry in general, is to, is to try to drop the protein levels in uh, the, the malt that they're using. Um, with today's U.S. malting varieties, the protein levels tend to be on the high side. So when you modify them, you get a significant amount of free amino nitrogen. That in itself creates an environment that does not promote the production of esters in your product, et cetera. So I actually have a, a paper, not a paper, but an article about that in the TQ, as well as a little more detail on this particular subject in the TQ as well. But um, when you try to reduce the available protein and that's in the soluble protein in order to get to a point where you have less free amino nitrogen, which gives you the ability to produce higher levels of esters um, when you're using an all malt product, um, you tend to under modify the kernel in order to, to get that to to actually function in that manner 
the under modification does not allow for the proper release of the carbohydrates from the grain uh, because they're encapsulated with beta-glucan uh, and xylan and capsules as well as a protein matrix around that starch. So what happens when you under-modify it, you will break up a lot of the beta-glucan, but you're going to leave it in large chunks, if you want to call it that, not well broken down, not well modified is the term. Um, and you'll have a lot of xylan in there. And that creates issues with laudering. It creates issues with filtration if you do filter um, or centrifugation for that matter. And, and um, you don't get the extract. You don't, don't get the, th the throughput. You might be sitting there running off in, in your brewery and it may take you three, four, five hours to get a brew to go through, et cetera. The same vein, if you cross the line and start adding products like wheat or rye, wheat is high in xylans, rye is high in xylans. Uh, whether they're malted or not, they're high in xylans, and they're going to create uh, filtration issues. And I don't know if, uh, if anybody's ever read this, but I'll, I'll make the statement here that 10 xylans are 10 times worse than beta-glucans on a, on a per-pound basis, if you want to call it that, on equal levels. that They are like the glue that makes your life miserable in that respect. So beta-glucanases can be added in order to break those down and the xylanases can be added to break those down. Typically in the commercial enzymes today, uh, they come in combinations. I will underline and give you some caution here though, but um, the use of beta-glucanases and xylanases or just independently beta-glucanases can be hazardous to your health. If you use the wrong ones or you use the wrong amount, you can actually be breaking down the cellulose fiber in your um, in, in your grain beds uh, and making the grain beds mushy and, and in that effect making the process even worse. So the best focus to to work on if you're going to be using uh, these products is to, to to look towards the higher quality ones. The ones are going to cost you a little bit more, I'm sure, in some respects. But the companies that understand what they're doing and how they uh, function so that they can actually lead you properly through that process. Um, you should be looking at beta-glucanase and xylanases that tend to focus primarily on the water-soluble side of the beta-glucans and xylanases, not the ones that want to sit in your cellulose fiber, but the ones that get into solution. And you break those down and, and free them up and, and, and making your life much easier, getting higher level extracts and getting faster runoffs, which to me, again, gets you back to the consistency of the product. If you got one runoff that runs in an hour and a half, you get the next runoff runs you in five hours. Those two beers are going to be totally different. Now, if that's your game, that's that's fine. Have fun with it. If it's not your game and you want to make the beers the same, getting to a consistent profile is is very important. How about thermostable alpha amylase? What can a brewer do with that? Mm, for the most part, those are more slotted for um, adjuncts uh, or the use of of non-malted materials that require some form of gelatinization and liquefaction of the starch. So um, if a brewer is inclined to reduce his protein levels and make a lighter lager, as an example, um, by maybe 70% malt, 30% corn, 30% rice, 30% some other grain that's not malted uh, that requires some form of uh, liquefaction. This is where thermostable am amylase comes in. Uh, you, you would add it to the cooking process to um, open up the kernels um, or the grain granules um, and starch granules and make them available for the heat 
and the gelatinization process. So as the, as, as the amylase works, it will actually just start breaking the starch up into pieces where it allows the, the actual full uh, amylose and starch granules to actually explode like popcorn. Um, if you don't add it in there, you don't get the full uh, availability of that starch. And, and then you get that, that kind of a problem. In the case of using um, uh, unwalted materials like barley or wheat, et cetera, those, the alpha amylases will function the same way. Those particular products tend to have a low gel temperature, so they don't have to, you can take them through your normal mashing process uh, and not having to cook them. But if you don't have an amylase in, in available for that and you get yourself into a level of dosage within your grain bill that's higher than what your own grain bill can supply enough alpha amylase to to do that digestion you're not going to get a reasonable digestion and again or a consistent digestion of of the of that grain so he uh, it could be added to the mash um if you're adding wheat you know or, or barley etc and, and give you that that uh, full a release of the carbohydrates there, getting reasonable extracts again, and a consistent process. Craft brewers don't typically need to supplement fan, but as recipes and ingredient lists get more complicated, there might be some times where even a craft brewer could benefit from protease and pept- peptidase. Uh, tell us about that. Wow. Uh, you know, I, I would actually say no. Um, I haven't met one yet unless you get into uh, starting to stretch the envelope of using um, unmalted materials. So if you wanted to uh, cross the line and potentially use something like 40 or 50 percent uh, barley in your product and make a full barley product or a very heavy wheat product, etc., then the use of peptidases gets a little strange. Um, it really only comes into play when you want to start to to test the limits of how much non-protein-based um, adjuncts you want to use. So if you wanted to use a corn-based and make it, uh, something from, you would say you're in central Iowa and, and all your farmers are making corn and you want to make a product that, that, that satisfies their interest in brewing. So you want to get in there and use 60% or, or 70% corn. Or, um, when you get into those levels of malt, um, you're, you're starting to press the availability of protein that's there. So that would be one of the, the opportunities for it. Uh, if you're looking to potentially have a product with no foam, uh, if you're making clear malt bases or or some other very high alcohol product that you want to serve as a brandy rather than as a beer, you know, type products and you want to eliminate the foam characteristics of it, then, then the then the proteases would be used. But um, proteases are within this industry, it, it very finite. And um, within my career time, I've only used them a couple times um, for very, very specific uh, opportunities similar to what I was talking about. I bet a lot of brewers don't realize they can control diacetyl with enzymes. Let's talk about how we can use enzymes to bypass diacetyl formation. The ALDCs, uh, alpha decarboxylases, or um, it's an enzyme that actually, as you proceed from the uh, with the um, oh, me here back into the amino acid sequence of of the. Um, uh, forming isoleucine and loose and um, valine, 
alpha-acetolactic um, is formed in that sequence when the yeast does not require the production of those particular amino acids the yeast will expel the the alpha-acetolactic from the um, from the cell and that will naturally decarboxylate uh, because of the pH that in the, in, in the environment that the yeast cell sits and form diacetyl. Um, in a healthy fermentation, the yeast will pick that diacetyl up and bring it back into the cell and reduce it back to acetylene. Um, there are enzymes available today that will actually grab that alpha-acetolactic and take it past uh, and do the reduction uh, directly to acetylene so it doesn't actually have to go into the into the enzyme. So if you're having difficulty or you're trying to shorten a fermentation sequence or you may have some yeast that tend to want to settle, this is a good solution in that regard. And the volumes and the amount that you're adding is, is like a thimble amount into these uh, fairly large fermenters. It's a fairly efficient um, enzyme. Um, it, it will give you a finished beer flavor of uh, without actually having to force the process so again it, it gets into that consistency piece if you got one fermenter that runs its cycle in in five days or four and a half days and that's a normal cycle time for you and then you get another one that sits out there for seven eight nine days and you get this kind of variability you're going to get the yeast impact and flavor impacts from the from yeast death etc and it may be all related to yeast health issues and how you're handling your yeast. And you may only have only specific abilities to, to do X, Y, and Z. But um, that variability is going to create two different beers. Um, or at the same time, you may have products that look great. But uh, as they sit in the in the marketplace, they, they build diacetyl because they haven't quite made the transition from the acetolactic to diacetyl. And it does it in the package. And you end up with the consumer saying, this beer tastes different than that beer. And um, that's not necessarily a good place. So the ALDC uh, enzyme is an interesting alternative to that uh, issue. Very good. How about improving colloidal stability through enzymes that selectively target haze-forming proteins? Most of the haze-forming proteins have a very high proline content. Um, and it, and He's let's let's back up. Let's back all the way back into protein digestion. So as you go through modification and in your malt, you get a significant amount of protein digestion, et cetera. And you're looking for an array of fermentable. I'm sorry, uh, free amino nitrogen that's uh, in small in very small, uh, less than three uh, sequences of amino acids available for your yeast. You've got peptidases, then you've got larger protein molecules, and you got full proteins. The full proteins tend to coagulate and settle out in, in your uh, hot water tank. You'll get some cold break in your fermenter, et cetera. All of that requires some level control. Um, you, a lot of brewers today don't have really good uh, protein separation, so a lot of that hot tube tends to get carried over in the fermenter, and sometimes they force yeast that out, and sometimes they don't, and, and some of that can get carried along into the process. So you can end up with a large amount of large particles of protein in your process that 
can be very unstable over time. They'll uh, interact with uh, anthocyanogens and other tannins, et cetera, and fall out of suspension uh, over time because that's a natural um, agglutination, if you want to call it that, uh, uh, of the proteins and the tannins getting together and, and polyphenols forming those haze complexes. There are different ways to uh, reduce that. Yeah, there's a lot of folks uh, use uh, PVPP or silica gel or et cetera. But there are there is a an enzyme, it's a proline specific endoprotease that can step into that process and target those particular proteins that have the tendency to form those polyphenol protein complexes because they're high in in proline. And this particular enzyme looks for a particular proline um, sequence and breaks it at that point and makes the molecule smaller. It makes it more available for characteristics like mouthfeel um, and foam, et cetera. So they, it, it actually will take the, the haze potential complexes and bring it to a more favorable size so that the beer will actually take on a little bit different characteristics and have have a uh, have a larger body and potential better form at the same time uh, these particular enzymes because of that particular sequence that they're breaking down tend to reduce the gluten in beer and making it analytically gluten-free i'll underline that word analytically gluten-free i'm not sure exactly how the government is looking at that particular um issue in that particular process but if you were to do the analysis after adding the pseps um to your product you actually would not get a, a, a gluten hit um so there are folks out there doing that today and and supplying the gluten-free market with products that um not necessarily gluten-free but gluten reduced in that re- in that regard Mark, in today's increasingly competitive marketplace, is there any reason a craft brewer shouldn't use commercial enzymes? Well, they're not right now in Scobalt. So, uh, and we both know how I feel about that particular trade barrier uh, <laughs> nonsense, but uh, it is what it is. Um, uh, craft brewers today, I think, are getting into an environment that competition is now. Um, less i don't want to call it less friendly but more intense um a few years ago you were the only brewery in in your little town and today uh you are now accompanied by five or six or seven or ten if you're in nashville you're 90 of us you know so each one of you uh each one of the crappers is out looking for a consumer um, the consumers are looking for uh, beers that they can enjoy and come back to. And I want to see that beer again, or I want to have, you know, another one of those beers. And that's another factor, too, that, that craft brewers need to recognize that that you're you're there to sell beer. Um, you're not there to make beers that are really cool and designed, et cetera. You, your lifestyle is based upon your ability to sell the next beer. So if a guy comes in or a woman comes into your process or into your and you're in a uh, brewery and or into your taste room and has a beer, if they have two, you've sold another beer. If they have three, you've sold three beers. If you sell them one heavily hopped, very inconsistent product and this is a one-off type product. You feel good that you made this really cool beer. That's wonderful, but you only sold one of them. 
um, survival today within this competition is going to be who can actually sustain their customers and who can sell the most beer. So when you step back from that, you look at the increased variability potential of the grains coming at you, the higher level of competition coming at you, the increased level of cost for these grains uh, where you can add a beta-glucanase and potentially save 3% of that grain and take that off your grain bill. Oh, that doesn't sound like a lot. But if you use a million pounds of grain, that's 30,000 pounds of grain in the course of a year. That's a lot of material um, that you could potentially put into your pocket and potentially using to put your kids through college or something of that nature. So to me, the use of commercial enzymes only makes sense because of where this industry is going. It's getting more and difficult to source materials for consistent and the competition levels are getting tenacious. And if you don't think they're going to get, you don't think they're bad today, when that next 1,500 to 2,000 breweries comes online, think about the potential of that. Do you want your beer to be sitting in the marketplace and having cloudy um, chunks floating in it and turning off that particular consumer? Do you want to have a consumer sit down and, and taste a beer and said, well, yesterday this one was good. Today it tastes like popcorn. Um, you know, do you want to save these raw materials and, and be able to make more product? Do you want to stretch the envelope on alcohol levels? These are all opportunities to set yourself different from the guy next door. Uh, and it's always nice to help the guy next door. But again, you, you have to sell your product in order to survive. So that's my advice for today. That was Mark Sammartino here on the Master Brewers podcast. Check the show notes for a link to a presentation Mark gave to District Carolinas, as well as his TQ article, Enzymes in Brewing. I joined District Mid-Atlantic back when it was dominated by large breweries, and I was often one of the only craft brewers in attendance. I'm so glad I joined. That membership has been incredibly impactful to my career, and I've made so many lifelong friends from those meetings. If you're not already a member, I highly encourage you to join. And there's no time like the present because new members can use promo code BEER2021 or the link in the show notes to save 20% on dues. Are you enjoying the Master Brewers podcast? Let me tell you about a simple way you can help us keep making more. Take a minute to thank our sponsors. There's no way we could produce this show without generous support from sponsors like Hopsteiner, Brew Ninja, Proximity Malt, BSG, Gussamer, and Precision Fermentation. So please, let them know you heard their message on the Master Brewers podcast and that you appreciate their support. Stop.